Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 6, verses 4 through 16, which is located in your bulletin and in our church Bibles on page 473. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, And Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. Please be seated. Let's pray as uh, we come to the Bible this morning. Lord, your word abides and our footsteps guides. He who its truth believes, light and joy receives. Father, we dare to hope that those words are absolutely true and that your words here in the Bible are meant for us not just simply as a history or as some just so story or a parable of some kind but words which reveal to us who you are and the way you act and the promises you have made to your people in Christ. So Father we come to you eagerly this morning that you would feed us in Jesus' name. I have uh, very few lion jokes in my repertoire. Looking through my repertoire, I found actually just one lion joke. 
So a man walks into a bar with a baby giraffe under his arm. He orders a drink. He puts the giraffe down and he begins to walk out. The bartender shouts after him, hey, you can't leave that lion there. To which the man replies, it's not a lion. It's a giraffe. I didn't say it was a good joke. It's just, it's just a joke. It may interest you to know there have been a number of scholars who have looked at the story of Daniel 6 and have proclaimed it undoubtedly a myth. This is allegory, they've said. These are not lions. They are Daniel's enemies, his adversaries at court. Well, these are not real lions. They're symbols for psychological or spiritual forces that are mythically sent to oppose the hero. Well, as ideas go, that's all very well. But one imagines, if you're to take those ideas seriously, that it wouldn't present much of a story or a worry for our hero to be thrown into a den of his critics. Nor would it seem to be much of a punishment for Daniel's enemies at the end of the story, if you've read that, to be torn limb from limb by so many ravenous symbols. We don't know how these lions came to be in Darius's possession, but they were all over Babylon. I wanted to show you this picture. This is from the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. If you went there today, you would see this. These are some of the reliefs from the ruins of the walls of Babylon. Archaeologists have found 120 lions. No lions in Babylon? Well, it makes you want to shout out, look behind you! Perhaps the king kept them as royal beasts, proud symbols of his regal power. Who knows? But understand this. If they were symbols, they were symbols with razor-sharp claws and extremely pointy teeth. Symbols or not, God has given us this story of Daniel, this history here in Daniel 6, to assure us, it seems, of two things. Number one, that laws and lions will roar at us. And the second is that God will shut their mouths. Let's uh, going to take a look briefly at this in a shorter time this morning. Let's look at these first 15 verses. This idea that laws and lions will roar at us. Daniel's enemies, you notice, have to play it carefully. This has been a recent change of administration, and reading Daniel 6, it didn't take long before Daniel's gifts and experience were recognized, and by God's hand, Daniel was raised to having the second position in the empire in the care of Babylon. And they know they can't go after Daniel directly, politically, so they manipulate, you'll notice, the new king. And using his own words, they bind Darius to a temporary decree banning all kinds of worship other other than to him as king. And that law, once spoken by the king, became the law of the Medes and Persians. And once something became the law of the Medes and Persians, anyone, you have to understand this, anyone, including the king, including the king that had just spoken the law, was unavoidably bound by it. In what amounted to their constitution, if he were to challenge it, he would be deposed. So, get this, the king who besieged and conquered Babylon, whose military abilities are still uh, reviewed and admired by war colleges to this day, seems here himself to have been besieged and conquered by his own civil service, by his own politicians. It's striking, isn't it? Convicting, really. 
that when good old-fashioned infighting and political competition and jealousy rears its head, and we may even have seen stuff like that happen in our own capital this week, Daniel, by contrast, had none of it. There was not a scandal, there was not a rumor that could be brought against Daniel. There was nothing that Daniel done, no skeletons in his closet that could have been dug up. These people no doubt tried. These people, I've heard them called uh, trap-happy satraps. Trap-happy satraps, that's one for remembering. They conspire against Daniel to bring him down, but they find no evidence to legitimately do so. You know, the ESV is faithful to the original here when it says of Daniel that even his enemies found, quote, an excellent spirit in him. Despite his position, despite his long life in Babylon, despite his political connections, Daniel was still vulnerable, but his enemies found only an excellent spirit in him. Such a convicting picture, I find. What if people knew who you and I really are? My grandmother used to tell me she was an Edwardian uh, grandmother, and she took me aside, I remember one day, I think I was probably seven, and she said to me, Stephen, a gentleman does nothing privately that he couldn't admit to publicly. But most of us, myself included, have done things and said things that we would much prefer to keep private right? I had a friend once who imagined what it might be to have a television monitor and some electrodes uh, brought in and the electrodes would be strapped to your head and by some uh, gadget the thoughts that you'd had in the last month would be shown on this television monitor and your family and friends would be brought in to see whatever had gone through your mind. It was a quite awful thought. But here's Daniel, and not only does he have no such thing to hide, but his life with God too, you will notice, is an open book, transparently and unpretentiously lived. So there's no doubt here, it's when Daniel knows, you notice, about this new law, it's not from ignorance that he goes to pray, but knowing it, that he makes the decision to carry on doing what he has always done. He opens his window towards Jerusalem, and he prays to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. What can we imitate from Daniel's example? Well, look, part of what it meant for Daniel to exhibit an excellence of spirit, which even his enemies could acknowledge, was his excellence in living transparently, living without compartmentalizing or hiding his faith. He lived his life openly. He worshipped Yahweh. That's who he was. And agree with him or not, same as him or not, people saw it as an excellent thing that this man's life was an open book. And I think this is part of what it is to to dare to be a Daniel when you look at Daniel 6. This is the challenge for us, not simply to dismiss him as a hero, somebody unusual who could leave a consistent life. But this is the power and the calling that we have been given in Christ in the power of his spirit, the courage to be holy who you are before people. Let your light so shine among men, Jesus said, that they may praise your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Isn't that a life motto? 
Isn't that a motto for 2017? Our Lord means for our lives to shine forth, that people would see him, that they would see him by his working even through us, by his grace, not to hide away for fear of confirming people's bad view of Christians, but to let people see who you are, warts and all. That's who Daniel was. That's what Daniel did. He opened the window and he let the light of the grace of God upon whom he so personally defended shine. How about you? It's easy, isn't it, for ours to become a covert faith. Will we let our light shine? Will we admit to others that we serve him? Will we say, yes, I belong to him? And second notice in verse 5, and there's no contradiction, I think, in this, there is a cost to living such a life. It's that very excellence, you'll notice, which his enemies expect from Daniel, which they then decide to use against him. It's their only plan. They say, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So that's the fulcrum, that's the master plan on which they will skewer both the king and Daniel, the king who must keep his law And Daniel, who can be counted on to put no human law above God. And I think this, surely, if anyone's to write a history of the beginning of the 21st century, this is the test for the church in the West. In the last 25 years, we have seen more change, I reckon, than we have in several hundred in terms of the cultural norms and beliefs of our society as to what is right and what is true and what is decent and what is praiseworthy, what is admirable. And when a new cultural norm blows through, when the shrill voices of critics in our society tell us you shouldn't be saying that, you should be saying this, and you shouldn't be doing that, you should be doing this, this, I think, is the question for us. Do we keep on doing and saying and believing what we've historically done, what the church has held to be true, what we ourselves in our experience have upheld to be right, Or will we, for the sake of convenience, or the sake of popularity, or for the sake of our own personal security, modify that faith? Will we keep quiet now about something that we've been bold to speak about before? Because it seems like the Bible is speaking, but Christians so often are not now. There are lots of these doctrines on which one might draw, unpopular doctrines, Uh, Let me choose the doctrine of hell, which I think I can safely say is universally frowned upon. I watched a movie last year. I'm not going to tell you what it was because I don't want you to watch it. (laughs) But there is a scene in it where uh, an actress who plays a kind of monster, a siren luring men to their deaths, leads her hypnotized prey uh, into a place that is dark, utterly dark, like a sea that is an oil slick, and it swallows them up. And they're left there utterly alone and forgotten, floating in the blackness. It was an utterly overwhelming depiction of the doctrine of hell. I heard someone say that eternal suffering awaits anyone who questions God's infinite love, they said, scorning it. But that's not it at all. It is because God loves us, because hell is a fact, according to the Bible, like the the last station on the line for human beings without God 
that God sent Jesus to persuade us to leave the train. And the Bible says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they to believe in him, it asks, if they have never heard of him. And I wonder if we haven't modified this part of the message. No Christian who's sane likes to talk about hell, but no Christian who knows that the Bible is true and loves those around them can keep silent about it. But again, it's only one example of a way in which we have been tempted to modify the faith for a 21st century audience. So how about you and me? Laws and lions will roar at us in popular disapproval if we are loyal to a biblical faith. But this is Christianity. It means standing with Jesus. Second, notice here this assurance and this promise that God will shut their mouths, that he will shut the mouths of lions. Roughly, uh, verses 16 to 28. I love this story. The drama of this story is incredibly moving, and all the more so, you know, like they say at the beginning of movies, taken from a true story. Well, this is a true story. You can imagine the moment when King Darius, having exhausted all possible legal solutions, watches desperately as presumably his closest ally and friend Daniel is then pushed into the lion's den and to what seems like an immediate death. And as he goes, isn't this touching? The king calls after him, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. As if to say, that's your best and only shot now, Daniel. And then the stone and the silence And for Daniel, the darkness, except perhaps for the warm breathing of lions. Critics, of course, have complained that there's no record of any lion's dens in Persian or or Babylonian archaeology. And besides, they don't think there would be any below ground in a city. To which one can only insist, as the text directs us, Daniel was dropped in and hoisted out. So... The laws of physics and gravity would presumably mean that was below ground, or at least below where he was hoisted in. And we don't know where it was, but we do know that the way in for the lion food was from above. And we're not told anything of the night that Daniel spent in the lion's den, except for what Daniel describes the next morning, when he says, My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me. It's what the writer of Hebrews extols as a representative example of heroic faith. People who by their faith in God stopped the mouths of lions. But of course, the way that faith is, it's not the people who stopped the mouth of lions, it's the God they trusted in who did. And I want to encourage you, still today we live in a world where we see rescue in answer to prayer. While I'm catching up on my movie watching, let me recommend a better movie. Uh, It came out last year. It's a movie called The 30... Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book... Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book... Without the direct intervention with God. Unless God... Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book. Imagine then the eternal counsels of God long before we were made. The father approached the son concerning that unbreakable law and the son volunteered to fulfill that law and was 
broken by its consequences and its penalties for yours and my sake. How does that change the way you live? How does that change what you and I speak about with other people? How does it change our confidence in prayer or our gratitude when this or that will upset us and we get things out of perspective? Are we living in the light of God's mercy to us? And Daniel's story, secondly, you'll notice, is about how his God does provide that rescue. I found this uh, picture. This is the picture from that San Jose mine. It's of that refuge where the miners fled for safety. It's 2,000 feet underground and a mountain of rock over their heads. It reminded me, as we sang this morning, he is a refuge. He is our refuge in the day of trouble. He is our shelter in the time of storms. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to you than he hath said? You who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. So what is that rescue? Well, notice it has two parts. Not only the salvation of Daniel's life, but the vindication of his open, transparent worship his supernatural rescue, his enemy's downfall, and the king's statement. They all say it. Daniel was right about God. He was right. And why is that important for you? It's important because if you are going to open your mouth to face lions and to risk opposition and and unpopularity, to lose friendships, as you may, you need to rest assured that in Christ, one day, everyone will see that the gospel is true. And that the words that you are speaking to them, it's not simply your own private opinion, which is to be outlawed in a multicultural, pluralistic society. What you are giving people are the words of life because they are true and they lead to their rescue if they will but respond to them. And thirdly, Daniel's story, as you may have guessed, is not finally about Daniel. So this is interesting, isn't it? With so many of these biblical stories, there comes a point where you have to step back and say, hang on, this sounds familiar. Here's a man in whom his accusers found no basis for any charge under the law against him. So they manipulate an unjust, arbitrary law to condemn an innocent man, only to watch as that same man puts God and others before his own safety. He's taken without a word in his own defense to his execution, and when at dawn his friends arrive at the den the tomb, they discover that this same man has been entirely vindicated by God through a great miracle and placed in authority over his accusers. That man, and more than a man, saved not just himself, but many when he came out of the lion's den and from more than lions. That's why this story is so important It was a sign waiting for people. It's been a sign for you when you get desperate, when you feel like nothing is going to shift the hopelessness in the way between you and your life. There is a law that has been answered. There is an innocent victim that has been betrayed and condemned. There has been an impossible rescue so that if people should see it unturned, they should see and tremble and fear before the God of Daniel... Because so great a salvation has been accomplished by the God who has saved us. So will you, this year, resolve to depend upon the God who rescues? 
upon the God who has rescued, because you cannot, I cannot, weave my own salvation. You cannot arrange to fix things for yourself. You are meant to depend upon the mercy of God and see him rescue you. So you who have been rescued from the jaws of the lions of death and hell, you are to approach this year in confidence and to take that message of rescue to those you rub shoulders with. So will you be willing? Will this church be willing to risk unpopularity, leaving it to the day when Christ will declare our vindication? Will you and I personally and corporately keep on keeping on, even in the trial that we are presently facing, with hope, with persevering hope, that the God who rescues will yet rescue you? This is the assurance of Daniel, that God is not deaf, that God is not absent, that God rescues, even from lions. Let's pray. Father, corporately this morning, as a body of believers and of those who are seeking you, of those perhaps even who are unsure whether you were there, we, each of us, are faced with what appears like a mountain of rock above our heads and this question, is there a God there who will answer prayer? Is there a God who loves me? Is there a God who will rescue We thank you for the story of Daniel that it affirms for us that indeed you have rescued and that you are coming and that you will vindicate in Jesus Christ. Lord, may we live in the good of this year, we pray, in that hope. Amen.